0: ask that you make your presence known to us uh, in this time that we share together, uh, that we would be open to whatever you have for us today. In Jesus' name.
1: There, now I have the mic on. Mm -hmm. Good Lord, it's a giant Falchinski. Welcome back, Creedon. Good to see you. Hey, everybody. Creedon's back, back from Germany. And going to spend your senior year here in Rapid City. So we get to see him every weekend, right? Holding you to that. Awesome. Good to see you. Um, okay, so happy Father's Day to all the dads and all those who take care of young people uh, like a dad would take care of them. Uh, glad to have you here. Uh, I want to just share before I give you the announcements a, uh, a, co- a common ground distinctive. Something that's different. So if you're new here, or uh, and, and new can be pretty relative. I've been around here knocking around for about five years, and I'm still figuring out where I'm at half the time. Uh, by the way, my name is Nick, and I'm kind of the chief misfit on staff here. Uh, so one of the distinctives about Common Ground is one I'm very excited about. Some time ago, my wife and I started a ministry to uh, millennials, and one of the things that was said about uh, that generation was that they were leaving the churches in droves, that, that they were just vacating church. And uh, Timothy Keller, who's a stud of a pastor up in New York, he uh, said that one of the things we have to uh, endeavor for is millennial leadership now, uh, millennial leadership now. So I want to just do something really quick here. If you are... Um, in leadership in some way like the you're already standing okay are you uh, 20 or 30 years old within that range okay all right Matt you can stand up now because you're in that range right okay um, if you're in leadership in this church in some function like you know you take notes for meetings or things like that and if you're in 20 or in, and you're helping out by serving like you're doing the soundboard or things like that and if you're in the 20 and 30 range would you just stand up for a second okay and we're missing a lot of people here today in fact now I just want you to take a look now if, if you're in the 20 to 30 range or younger maybe just under 20 or something would you just stand up for a second Okay, and this is with most of our college students gone. Okay, all you people are still sitting down, okay? Uh, yeah, you young guys there, you'll be in the 23. Okay, all, all you people that are still sitting down, um, yeah, we're the misfits. Uh, we're the misfits here. This is a common ground distinctive is that the majority of this church, you can sit down now, that attend here or lead here are in the millennial uh, to Zoomer age range. And I just find that an amazing thing, and I praise God for that every day. So thank you, uh, all you youngsters, for making Common Ground what, what Common Ground is. And speaking of some of our, our uh, millennials and Zoomers, uh, Ben and Kevin, uh, and Kevin's right here, uh, they are going to be going somewhere in the world, which we can't really tell you exactly where they're going. On a mission trip this summer, and if you would like to support them, uh, you can do that. And there's information back there at our giving table that will allow you to know more about that. Just visit with uh, Kevin here and uh, learn more about that. And uh, the other thing that we have going on that just started is Walking Women Wednesdays. Okay, that's 9 o'clock. They meet at Founders Park. That's the one with the big fish uh, by the volleyball nets. And if you want to join in with that, ladies, just go ahead and do that. Uh, If you need more information, just look for a walking woman, and uh, hopefully she'll be able to help you out with that. Uh, We also have sign-ups. That clipboard is back there by the giving table on the stool right next to it with a pen uh, because we need help with cleanup and snacks and things like that. And if you'd like to help us out, we would encourage you uh, to do that. Now, I don't have a slide for this, but it's just something that I want to kind of tease, and we'll give you more information as we progress through this. Uh, But some of you might remember a thing called refuge groups. And then came COVID. And then the refuge groups just kind of evaporated a little bit. Um, So there is going to be a refuge resurgence uh, happening here, and it's going to be just a little bit different. And we just wanted to kind of get this picture out to you so that you kind of knew what it was going to look like. Uh, what we want to do in these refuge groups is really build community okay uh, we have lots lot of Bible studies going on and those will include Bible study as well but we really want to focus on building community so here's how easy it is and we will be developing leaders and training leaders in the time this whole plan but it's just a very simple thing what's something that you like to do Joey what is something that you enjoy doing Disc golf. Okay, it's more fun with other people, right? Okay, so Joey doesn't have to do this, but this is how easy it is. Uh, Joey could just say, hey, every Tuesday, if that's his his time, um, I'm going to be playing disc golf. And you just build a group of disc golfers, and you keep doing it and keep doing it, and you build a community of people that enjoy that. And then, after a couple of months, introduce a Bible study to that group. See how that works? Of the community how many of you ever gone to a Bible study and you want to have a discussion and everybody just kind of sits there like a lump on the log yeah, that's because we really don't have a lot of community but if we build that first then we're gonna feel a little bit more free to share and to talk about those things so think about stuff that you enjoy doing stuff that you would enjoy having other people join you in doing and just build a community of refuge with those people and then we'll show you how to introduce Bible studies into that okay that's it for announcements thanks for being here one of the things we'd like to do is awkward social interaction time because it's just awkward because of the people here and uh, so I guess what I'm gonna just ask you to do is get up take a moment say hi to everybody and uh, tell someone the, your favorite thing about your dad what's the thing you like most about your dad okay go
0: to give everything that we have and we know it's not enough um, but you love us still Um, thank you so much for everything that you give to us Um, help us to be um, open to just giving right back Um, we're gonna go into a time of offering Um, on the screen you'll see the different options of how to give to the church Um, I just encourage you guys to really think about it because giving to the church is a really big deal. Um, you know, ministry takes a lot of time and a lot of money and, um, we want to, um, be able to keep things running. So, um, just think about it, pray about it, um, ask God what you can give, um, to be a part of this ministry and a part of this church um we are going to go into another song uh, and i just would love if you guys could pray it with me
2: common ground. You read my mind. You may be seated. It's almost like you've done this before. And with that, we will be entering into the next part of the service, which is a time of prayer. And it is a time that we so much appreciate. And I know this time can sometimes be different. We might have testimonies like we've been doing in the past. Um, So we always appreciate when we have those opportunities. Uh, But I think we're going to go back to a classic prayer time this week. Um, But before we do that, I'd like to excuse our children. You guys can head on downstairs and we have some fun activities for you down there. Okay, so I want to open up the floor to you guys. How can we pray for you this morning? How can we lift up whatever you might be going through? uh, And how can we pray for you as a church this morning? So if you have a prayer request, just raise your hand and our devilishly handsome Nick will run the mic to you.
0: We just want to thank everyone who's been praying for us as we have walked this journey with our family and the twins that my family adopted They arrived in Denver this week. They are now citizens and are able to live here permanently.
2: Wow. That was awesome. Praise God. What else?
3: I guess I mentioned this to a few people, but for my mission trip to Pterodactyl Island. I need, currently I I need a work visa because I'm going to be there for four months and right now it's not approved yet so uh, we just pray for me to get that because currently I'd have to have two tourist visas. I'd have to leave and then
2: come back in and that's just more expensive. Um, But yeah. Awesome. We'll pray for that. Pterodactyl Island, is that like Jurassic Park or is it I don't know suppose dinosaurs need Jesus too.
3: Stubb. Yeah, this is the first time I've been out since COVID, except to exercise. And I
4: couldn't think of a better place to go than to go to church with you people. I praise the Lord.
2: Amen to that. <laughs> Amen. So happy to have you with us, Stubb.
3: Just a prayer of praise. Uh, our daughter was born Thursday, so.
2: And pretty, what's her name? Pretty excited. What is uh, your daughter's name?
3: Uh, Liara Grace Phelps, L-I-A-R-A. If you're writing it down.
2: All right. Praise Jesus for that too. Any other prayer requests this morning? Laura
0: can you pray for Jonas he has to go back to school on Monday after his quarantine and he only has one week left because all the teachers quit coming at the end of school because they already gave out grades but he kind of dreads uh French school so can you pray for him
2: absolutely we will pray for Jonas school's hard for everyone dang school
3: I'm proud be being Father's Day. I'm a father of two married and one single, a grandfather of four married and one single, and a great-grandfather of 10. The, the oldest
4: one will be a senior in high school. The youngest one will be one in August.
2: That is awesome. <laughs> Amen other requests. I'm really good at waiting. I can just wait up here forever.
1: I'll add one. Sure. So Evan and Lena are uh, currently on vacation. Uh, They're halfway through. They'll be back uh, I think this Saturday. And uh, they're back home in uh, uh, Oregon. So just pray for them to have a very relaxing and refilling time with family and friends.
2: Absolutely. We will pray for our pastor and his wife. Okay. I think we can go into a time of prayer. If you guys would just bow your heads with me, we'll pray as a church. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this body. Thank you for these people and I thank you for this building, that we get to come together and just enjoy time with one another, be in community, and ultimately, God, uh, worship you. And so what a blessing that that is, that we get to do that in a country where we have the freedom to do so without fear of persecution, God. Um, so we just pray for Kevin as um, he has a summer of preparing his heart for the mission trip in an undisclosed location God um, he's heading into a country where he might not have that same freedom um, but God I just pray that you strengthen him embolden him and that you that you would watch his steps and that you would open up a path for him to get to this country um, and one of those things one of those steps God is a work visa so we just ask that you would provide in that situation and just check all the boxes and so that Kevin and Ben can go to this country and worship you and and make your name known. And God, we have many blessings that we want to thank you for, one of them being Liara. We thank you so much for welcoming this beautiful child into this world, God. And we just pray that you would surround her um, with people who would point her to you, God, that she would grow up knowing your name. And God, we thank you so much uh, for the Coles um, friends, and we just... Thank you so much that they're now citizens of the United States, God, and that they get to live in this country. And so we'll praise you for that. And we also pray for Stubb as um, he gets to be here with us today. And we missed his presence in this church and his his big old smile, God. Um, And we just want to pray a huge thank you for the legacy that you've made with his family. Um, He's got so many kids, and they they have kids. And um, what a beautiful um, generation that you've made with him. And um, so we just praise you for that this morning, God. We also want to pray for Evan and Elena this morning as they are in Oregon, um, being with their friends, being with their family, God. I just ask that you let them relax. Let them have a long Sabbath where they're away and they get to just really enjoy um, the beautiful state of Oregon. And we just ask that you protect them as they travel back next week, God. We also want to pray for Jonas as he is back in France, God, we just ask that you would protect over him and give him strength and boldness as he has just a little bit of school left, God. I just pray that you would ease his spirit and help him to remember that you're with him, God. And so, Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would hear all these prayer requests and that um, that you would listen and that you would make your will known, God, and that, um, that yeah, that... Um, that you would hear us, God. So we just pray all these things in Jesus' holy name, amen. All right, now we're going to invite Job up to deliver a sermon to us this morning.
3: All right, thank you, Matt. All right, hello, everyone. My name is Job Goodale, and I'm, uh, I'm just a person, uh, nothing, nothing too crazy. But yeah, last time I was here, we were still in the basement at the creamery, and there were only like 10 people here, and a camera like shoved right in front of my face. So whew, this is very different, but here we go. So if you've been with us for the past couple of months, we've been slowly making our way through the book of Daniel. For those of you who have not been with us, but also just as a good refresher, the book of Daniel is divided into two sections. The first section is very narrative or story-driven, and we see Daniel and his friends try to live honorably in the midst of exile in Babylon. That's where we get a lot of our famous Sunday school stories of um, Rakshak and Benny in the fiery furnace, uh, Daniel in the lion's den, and stuff like that. The second half cycles back chronologically, and it follows through some of the prophetic visions given to Daniel later on in his life. And in order to describe some of these visions, uh, Evan has been using this analogy of like a sports bar, where you have all of these TVs playing different games on the bottom, but our attention is meant to be drawn ultimately to the big screen on top. And God uses this in order to sort of pull back the curtain and reveal to Daniel what is going on. Because it's called apocalyptic literature, which is something that oftentimes we try to attribute to like this cataclysmic end of the world, um, but literally means revealing or unveiling. And so in it, God is unveiling the spiritual reality, giving Daniel a spiritual perspective of what is currently happening as well as the future for Israel. This particular um, book um, as a whole, but each of these visions um, are ultimately trying to show us the main theme that we've been using throughout our study today, um, and we'll continue on today, and that is that God uses prophecy to, or sorry, God is in control, and he gives us what we need to live faithfully in exile. And so as um, Daniel and his friends are outside of their normal home of Israel and they are being inundated with this worldly influence, uh, we see God in his sovereignty providing for Daniel and his friends whatever they may need, whether that's protection, hope, strength, encouragement, and we'll continue that on as well. But before we begin, I'd actually like to begin with the end. Because this section, this particular chapter, is very difficult. It's very dry and it's very easy to get lost. And so I want to give you a tether in order to hold on to so that hopefully you don't get lost as we go through. And that is the theme for today, which is that God uses prophecy to demonstrate his faithfulness so we can have hope in the face of suffering. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, uh, and we thank you that uh, we do have the freedom to come together and publicly worship you. Uh, I pray that as we come and submit ourselves to your word, that you would be opening our hearts, softening our hearts to hear and receive what you would have for us, and that uh, what we hear would not simply just stay as head knowledge and good information but that we would be able to go out from here, put it into practice, and declare that truth to the world. Uh, please, yeah, be with me, give me uh, words to say, and yeah, if anything uh, is not from you, I pray that, yeah, you would erase it or change the air molecules between my mouth and these people's ears uh, so that it would be what you want them to hear. We love you so much, Lord. Uh, we thank you and praise you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you would open your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 11, we will begin. And a bit of uh, background, uh, chapters 10, 11, and 12 are actually one uh, single cohesive interaction. And chapter 10 actually ends with this messenger angel coming to Daniel in order to encourage him in this uh, yeah, mental struggle that he's having, trying to understand and bear a lot of the Um, the hurt and the grief and the despair of seeing a lot of these visions. And so it's actually the same messenger angel who is speaking through the entirety of this chapter. Now, um, yeah, like I said before, it is very dry, but we're going to try and read it all in one big fell swoop. And so this is going to demand your attention, your focus, and I would ask that you try and stretch and exercise your ability to be attentive to large sections of scripture, and especially difficult scripture like this prophecy. And so, as we read, really try and feel the conflict and the tension that goes on throughout this chapter. So, beginning in verse one, and in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings Will arise in Persia, and the fourth, who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will arise, who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be betrayed together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. One from her family line will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as as his fortress. Then the king of the south will march out in rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands. Yet he will not remain triumphant, for the king of the north will muster another army larger than the first, and after several years he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. In those times many will arise against the king of the south. Those who are violent among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. He will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south. And he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom. But his plans will not succeed or help or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them, but a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back on him. After this, he will turn back toward the fortress of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle." He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully, and with only a few people he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did he will distribute plunder loot and wealth among his followers he will plot the overthrow of fortresses but only for a time with a large army he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south the king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away, and many will fall in battle. The two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail, because the end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, and his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it, and then return to his own country. At the appointed time, he will invade the South again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by a sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place." he will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women nor will he regard any god but will exalt himself above them all instead of them he will honor a god of fortresses a god unknown to his ancestors he will honor with gold and silver with precious stones and costly gifts he will attack the mightiest fortresses and the help of a foreign god with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his powers over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and the Cushites in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. Wow, good job, guys. Alrighty, so as we look at this chapter and the book of as, as a whole, um, Evan had previously talked about it, but I'll say it again that there are a lot of critics who try to dispute the authorship of Daniel for this book. And yeah, chapter 11 is one of the, the key things of conflict. They think that there is no way that Anyone can know with such precision and detail how history would unfold. Because, yeah, a lot of this is actually historic. And today, we can look back and we can overlay this chapter with history and see that it matches perfectly. So instead, critics will claim that someone later on, after all of these things had transpired, wrote history and impersonated Daniel, pretending that it was prophecy instead. Now, they are right in saying that no human can know the future, much less the future with this level of precision. But even Daniel in chapter 2, when he was confronted with interpreting and explaining Nebuchadnezzar's dream, was like, I can't do anything. But there is a God who knows dreams and can give you the interpretation. And so we believe in a God who does know the future and could give it with the exact precision that this chapter entails. Now, in order to go through all of the details to its fullest extent, it would take weeks of sermons, and so we are not going to do that today. However, I would encourage you to do a little bit of research to actually try and see how amazingly history lines up with this chapter. But I will try and give you a bit of an eagle-eyes perspective in order to uh, sort of place this chapter in our biblical timeline. And so, in the first 35 verses, there are uh, actually 135 prophecies that have been historically fulfilled, and it spans from about 540 B.C. to 160 B.C. Let that sink in. 35 verses, 135 prophecies. One of the major aspects of prophecy in the realm of world religion is that it sifts out Truth and establishes what religions are true and identifies lies. A lot of religions will just not touch prophecy, period, because they know that it won't hold up. And no other religion can stand up to the test of fulfilled prophecy like the Bible can. Now, verse 1 shows us uh, where in the timeline this uh, whole thing begins and says, And in the first year of Darius the Mede. And so, yeah, we begin with King Darius, the um, co-regent, co-ruler with Cyrus of Persia in the Medo-Persian Empire. In chapter 2, zooms through the next four prominent kings of Persia. Now, history would tell us that these kings are Cambyses, the son of Cyrus, Bardia, another king who goes by the name of Darius, and Xerxes. And you actually might know Xerxes better by the name Ahasuerus, who is the prominent king in the book of Esther. And it was also this Xerxes who um, went on a military campaign into Greece, was deeply struck at the Battle of Thermopylae with King Leonidas and his 300 Spartans, but was ultimately turned away at the naval battle of Salamis. Now, this invasion instilled in Greece a desire for revenge, and that revenge festered for 150 years until verse 3 tells us of a great king, Alexander the Great, who united Greece and took them to conquer the entire known world. But, as we've talked about in previous sermons, Alexander the Great died at a very early age, and his kingdom was divided among his four generals. Now, verse 5 through about 35 will zoom in on two of these generals, General Seleucus and General Ptolemy, who go on to form the Seleucid and Ptolemaic Empire. And they are referred to, or rather just whoever is the king at that current time, as the king of the north and the king of the south because oftentimes, as we saw, one king will die, and then the successor will take his place and continue on. And so, yeah, we get this back and forth of king of the north, king of the south. And sometimes it's good about identifying them, but then it would say, like, he will attack him, and they will lose, and then he will, oh my goodness. But we see this back and forth conflict between these two nations that spans for hundreds of years. But yeah, why the identifiers, king of the north and king of the south. It doesn't mean that the other two kings were king of the east and king of the west, because in fact, the other two kings were further north than the king of the north. Instead, this is um, in reference to a specific geographic location. But the question is, what is that reference point? You see, like these stairs are to the north of me, but they're to the south of you, and they're to the east of you guys. And so, yeah, what what is this uh, reference point that this angel is using in describing it to Daniel? The Seleucid Empire actually is in present-day Syria, and the Ptolemaic Empire was in present-day Egypt. Sandwiched right in between those was the land of Israel, and so that is our reference point. As we're going through this chapter and we see this back and forth, our hearts should break much like Daniel's heart was breaking at the thought of Israel being trampled and beaten underneath these two nations as they're marching right through Israel with no regard to them in order to attack their neighbor. So yes, this back and forth goes on, but then in verse 21, we actually focus in on one particular king who has come up in previous visions as well. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes. And uh, like chap- this chapter said, um, history tells us that he did illegitimately rise to power, that he was the son of the king, but he was not the the rightful heir. That, that actually went to his brother, um, who he then had assassinated and uh, had a coup to instill himself in uh, as the throne. And uh, yeah, lots of historians believe that he was, Uh, mad and insane and would go on crazy rages of bloodlust and um, would, uh, as this chapter describes, um, attack the king of the south in Egypt a couple of times. But the second time, he's actually turned away. And this chapter tells us that it was ships from the coastland. And history will say that as he was approaching Egypt, he actually ran into a Roman ambassador. And the Roman ambassador told Antiochus to leave or he would be considered a declaration of war against the Roman Senate. So Antiochus tried to play it off and give himself some time, ah, I'll think about it and I'll write Rome a letter. And it says that this ambassador drew a circle around Antiochus in the sand and said, before you leave, I need a report to send back to Rome. So the intimidation tactic worked and says that, yeah, the king was turned away, dismayed, with his tail tucked between his legs. But on his way back to Syria, he has to stop through Jerusalem. And still, in his rage and in his bloodlust, he decides to slaughter over 80,000 Jews in a single day. He stops the temple sacrifices, bans the Sabbath law and circumcision, and also sets up a shrine to Zeus in the temple, sacrifices a pig to it, and forces the priests to drink the pig's blood. And for the Jew, the pig was like the worst of the worst for unclean animals and kosher law. This caused one of the priests, a name by Judas Maccabeus, to not be able to tolerate this persecution anymore. And so he revolts him along with a group of rebels who are just generally known to history as the Maccabeans into the Maccabean Revolt. They're able to overthrow um, Antiochus Epiphanes, win independence for the region, and cleanse the temple. And actually, the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah is in commemoration of this, the the victory that they had over this abomination of desolation, the re-cleansing of the temple, and the continuation of the Jewish practice. And now that brings us to verse 36 where I believe there's actually a shift from historic fulfilled prophecy to now future expectation because a lot of historians will try and still give a historic interpretation for the rest of this chapter but oftentimes they either have to like really stretch what these things mean or just straight up turn things into symbols which really none of this chapter has been symbolic so far. And so, yeah, I believe that, yeah, we are still awaiting part of this chapter to be fulfilled. Now, um, it is not one of the kings of the north or the king of the south, because in verse 40, we see that the king of the north and the king of the south attack this king. So oftentimes, Bible scholars will attribute this to what the New Testament calls the man of sin, the son of perdition, or the Antichrist, which is what I believe is being talked about here. Now, there's a lot of people trying to name names and say that, oh yeah, this person is the Antichrist, or this person is going to be the Antichrist, and I'll let you guys do the research on that and come up with your own decisions, but be careful, because there are some very, very weird interpretations out there. But as we continue, I actually want to take a step back and ask the question of like, what should our attitude actually be? as we approach this chapter in specific, but prophecy as a whole. In the book of Daniel, throughout all of these different visions, he was told 11 times by angels, indirectly by God instructing an angel, that Daniel was supposed to understand, to know, or be told that he was being declared truth. And I believe that he was given the tools in order to understand a lot of this prophecy. I will give a qualifier that in chapter 12, there is an aspect that Daniel nor we are meant to understand until a later time. But for a lot of this, Daniel, Israel, and we are supposed to and can understand it. We have the privilege that much of biblical prophecy and much of this chapter is all historic, and so we can understand it through a historic perspective. However, for Daniel, none of it was historic. All of it was prophetic. And so in order to, yeah, try and understand this, um, I've tried to develop a, a little framework, just a very general framework. This is not meant to be like seven steps to understand the Bible, but something hopefully that will be practical in helping you understand. If you listen to Evan, Nick, and Brian, in their podcast about chapter 9, dealing with the vision of the 70 weeks, one of the interpretations that they talked about was that the ending of the first 69 weeks lands on April 6th in A.D. 32 when Jesus is riding on a donkey over the Mount of Olives and looks over Jerusalem before the triumphal entry. As Jesus approaches the city, he looks at it and weeps and says, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Israel had the tools given to them to know when Messiah would come. Between Daniel chapter 9, various other prophecies all pointing to the coming of Messiah, they should have been eagerly expecting the coming of Jesus but they didn't because they didn't understand. And today, many people are fearful of prophecy because they think that it's too boring, too difficult, or doesn't give you that warm, tingly feeling like some of the Psalms or the epistles do. So let's read those instead. But I want to push back on that and say that we shouldn't run away from prophecy, but we should engage with it, wrestle with it, chew on it, and try and seek God through it. So, like I said... um, I've given you just a couple of very, very general steps to help you with a very practical approach in looking at prophecy. The biblical, uh, prophecy, um, biblical prophecy likes the number seven, and so uh, I thought it'd be funny and give you seven steps. Step number one is to commit yourself to prayer. I think Daniel is a great example of this. In chapter nine, the entire first half of it is about Daniel coming to God in repentance and confessing his sin and lifting up this heart of repentance to the Lord. And I think this is great for us to do as well. If we try and approach prophecy for simply the sake of gaining personal knowledge, we've missed the point. We need to be looking at prophecy with a sense of love for others and a love for God. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, said that, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So as we approach prophecy, our heart should be in repentance and love for the Lord. Step number two is to continue to pray. In chapter nine, it was really nice that as he was praying, Gabriel came to give him the answer. But in chapter 10, Daniel has to fast for three weeks before the answer comes. How often do we send off a quick little prayer to God, go on with our day. We don't really hear anything, and so we just assume the answer is no and move on without trying anymore. And so, yeah, we should be steadfast in our prayer. And Paul, in his letters to Colossians, says that we should continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful of it with thanksgiving. Step number three is to consider a literal interpretation. I put this as the first interpretation because, one, it's the easiest. You just read whatever's on the page. But, two, it's the most objective. In verse 9 of chapter 11, it says that, then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. Perfect. Yeah. If we just take a very simple, literal interpretation, you and I can both read this passage and more than likely come to the same conclusions. If we try and force some sort of weird symbolism or idiom, it just makes this so complicated and forced, and it's unnecessary. So that's not to say that we need to take the entire Bible literally, because there are certain things that are meant to be symbolic. But, yeah, like we see, it's just so much easier simpler to consider this first in order to um, yeah try and process through this we'd also give the caveat that there is room for literal symbols that there can be a physical object that did exist or a physical uh, or literal act that is to occur and it actually happens or is supposed to happen but it's also meant to be symbolic of something else that it doesn't have to be one or the other Step number four is to correlate with other scripture. On your screen uh, should actually be um, an image, a graphical image, of some of the cross-references of uh, the Bible. Maybe? Excellent. And so you can just see how interconnected the Bible actually is. One of my favorite pastoral sayings is, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And so, as we approach any prophecy, or any scripture for that matter, we should be looking at what else is being referenced. Take all of scripture and see how it can inform and bring enlightenment to whatever we are considering. As an example, the book of Revelation has 404 verses in it. Within those 404 verses, are over 360 references to the Old Testament. If you want to even consider looking at the book of Revelation, you're going to be flipping back to the Old Testament so much, the Gospels might actually fall out of your Bible. And so, yeah, as we approach anything, and especially prophecy, we need to be looking at the whole story of Scripture. And so, correlate with other Scripture. Step five, contextualize potential symbolism or idioms. I put this after correlating with other scripture, because oftentimes, if we understand what is being referenced, that can give us insight into what it is we're trying to understand currently. A lot of times, language will be full of idioms that are impossible to perfectly translate to a different language. When I was in high school, I took a Spanish class And um, the teacher was telling us a story about why we shouldn't use Google Translate um, and uh, or anything like that, and saying that she caught someone cheating because uh, in a paper that they were supposed to write for class, the student was trying to write, I'll be right back, which a native Spanish speaker will probably say something to the effect of vuelvo pronto, like I will return promptly. However, this student decided to presumably go to google translate and translate al be right back and he ended up writing estuve i will be right the direction right back which means nothing to a spanish speaker and so oftentimes in scripture there's it's been translated from multiple different languages And so uh, some translations use a word-for-word method, and a lot of times these idioms are preserved. And so it can be difficult for our Western modern minds to be able to interpret without contextualizing what it meant in that original language. Along with that, everything was written at a specific time, at a specific place, to a specific audience. And so being able to understand who it was written and what it was written for Can continue to bring insight. The sixth step is to connect to Jesus. The Bible is, after all, the story of Jesus. And so we can look for how we see Jesus in whatever this is. The book of Revelation is literally the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was being revealed through the entire book and, by extension, the entire Bible. That does not mean that we need to, like, weasel our way through and around every single verse to try and come to some sort of nice, neat, cohesive gospel message. But rather, we can take the gospel, we can take the cross, bring it to the verse, and see how the truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, brings further insight and understanding to whatever we're reading. Finally, step seven is to conclude with prayer. Like I said before, this is not some magic like do these seven things and you'll understand the Bible, but it's just a general framework. And so I think it's nice to end how we began and just turn our hearts back to God in worship and praise and thankfulness for who he is, what he's done, and what he is continuing to do. All right, so we have this nice neat framework with its cute alliteration, but it still doesn't answer the question of why. Why? why should we care? Why do we care that Obadiah prophesied that Edom would be judged thousands of years ago? Who cares? To that, I will point you back to the theme that I gave you at the beginning, that God uses prophecy to demonstrate his faithfulness so that we can have hope in the face of suffering. Like I've said before, much of biblical prophecy has already been fulfilled, but there is some that we are still looking forward to. And as we look, we can see how perfectly God has fulfilled prophecy in the past. And that can give us hope that the things that He still has said that He will do will come to pass as He has stated. For unbelievers who have not accepted Christ, this should give you a sense of fear and hopefully repentance because it does not look good for the rest of the world when Jesus Christ returns. But to those of us who recognized our sinfulness and how it separates us from God, repented of our sins, and accepted the work of Christ, who died on the cross, as payment and punishment for our sins on our behalf, and acknowledge him as our personal Lord and Savior, we can respond in faith and in boldness, regardless of our current situation, because we know how it ends for us, and that's awesome. Daniel was confronted with the reality that the future of his people would be one of pain and suffering, that as these two nations continue to war, that Israel is going to be caught in the crossfire through the entire time. For us today, we can look around and we can see how difficult it is around the world to be an outspoken Bible-believing Christian. As we said in the announcements, Ben and Kevin are going to what is called a creative access country, because if they showed up at customs and said, hey, I'm a Christian, I want to tell people about Jesus, they're going to be turned around on the very next flight at the best case. The worst case, they might just be thrown in prison. And so we need to come with creative ways to access the country, which is why they're going under the guise of an engineering project. Under the guise, they're actually going to do an engineering project, <laughs> but... <laughs> and even in the Western world, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Brian and Laura shared about the culture in France. And while it's not directly hostile to Christians or faith in general, the culture is still, you leave it at the door. As soon as you leave your house... Faith is not, no longer on the table. But, despite that, we do see hope given to Daniel in this chapter. In verse 32, he says, With flattery, he, the king of the north, Antiochus Epiphanes, will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their god will firmly resist him god always provides a remnant to his people we've seen it throughout history in the time of the flood god provided the remnant in noah and his family in the time of the judges there was always the few who st- stayed true to the world to the lord while the rest of the world the rest of israel was doing what was right in their own eyes. Through the times of the kings, there were a select few who continued to follow in the ways of David, their father, who honored the Lord. Prophets continued to be sent to Israel in order to tell them of the coming judgment, and few remained true. In the time of Jesus, while many still rejected him, there were few a remnant who listened to him and honored him. And so, while Daniel is looking at a very bleak future for his people, there is hope that there will be a remnant, that some will stay true and will resist the influence of the world, like he and his friends did when they were in Babylon. However, the completion of Daniel's hope is unfortunately found in chapter 12. And so you guys are going to have to wait a week to hear the fullness of Daniel's hope. But we, as we go out, we can have hope that no matter what our current situation looks like, we can have faith in God who has been faithful to us so far. And we can see that demonstrated through all of this fulfilled prophecy. And that can give us boldness and assurance to look forward to that our hope our security, our perspective is eternally secure in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Now, some of you may be thinking or saying to yourselves, okay, Job, you gave us this nice framework for how to look at prophecy and I, I get how God shows us his faithfulness so we can have faith in him as well, but what, what do we do? Like, How do we demonstrate that faith? Matthew 24, along with Mark 13 and Luke 21, are called by Bible scholars the Olivet Discourse. In it, Jesus gives his predictions of the destruction of the temple, the signs of the end times, the abomination of desolation, as discussed here in the book of Daniel, and his second coming. And after that, he follows up his prophecy with three parables. In the Matthew account, there's actually four Um, but we'll focus on the first three. And those are the parable of the two servants, the parable of the ten virgins, and the parable of the talents. In the first parable of the two servants, we see the good servant rewarded and the evil servant punished when the master returns early and finds his servants doing or not doing what he had said they should do when he left. In the parable of the ten virgins, the five wise virgins brought extra oil for their lamps as they were waiting for the bridegroom and because they had brought the extra oil they were still prepared when the, bridegroom, when the bridegroom was a little late or tarried in coming. And the foolish ones who didn't bring oil actually missed the wedding feast because they were off trying to buy more oil at midnight when all the stores are closed. But as we connect this to Jesus' return, it doesn't matter if Jesus' return is sudden when we're not expecting it or if it's delayed and longer than we think. The third parable answers our question of what do we do in demonstrating our faith in the meantime. In the parable of the talents, servants are given different measures of wealth in order to steward and take care of while the master is away. Those who invest in what the master is doing, are rewarded. But we should not be like the evil servant who simply buried what was given to him and dug it up once the Lord returned. Oftentimes you'll hear in churches that there are three things that you can give to God. Your time, your treasure, and your talents. And a lot of people think this is just an overused mantra, but really these things encapsulate the opportunities that God has given to us to steward and use and invest in his kingdom while we wait. I won't go into all the ways that you can demonstrate your faith and invest in what God is doing, but since today is Father's Day, you can start with calling your dad, telling him that you love him. Now, I know there might be reasons that make it hard or even impossible to do that, but know that you have a heavenly Father who is always there, who is always happy to take your call, and who desires to hear that you love him and show you that he loves you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Uh, We thank you for your faithfulness that you have shown us that you are in control and you do provide everything that we need as we live in this exile here on earth and eagerly await your soon return. And we can trust that because of your fulfillment of things in the past, we can look forward to the truth that you will come as you said you will. As we go from here, please give us boldness to not shy away from the truth and the joy that we have in you and the work that you did, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Whether that be at work or school or in the community, that we would just be bright and shining lights of you and your love. Thank you so much, Lord, um, for today, for the time that we had to come together. And we love you so, so much. And we thank you for your love for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. One, if we want to allow the kids to come in, they have been making some surprises for the fathers, Father's Day. (laughs) And two, as they are distributing their goods, I leave you with the words of Paul in his letter to the Philippians. I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Go in peace, common ground. Thank you.